Thank you, choir. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, church, for singing with us to the worthy Lamb. Take your copy of God's Word. I hope you have one. And turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 3. We are going to actually be taking up verses 17 through 39 this morning. So uh, really the rest of chapter 3 we haven't covered thus far. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to begin by reading verses 17 through 21. Because there are three very clear sections here today. And so we're going to go ahead and read the other two when we get there. And so the passage is 17 through 39. But we'll be taking up when we read, uh, for the reading of God's Word, verses 17 through 21 of 2 Samuel 3. And I'll invite you now, if you found your place in God's Word, uh, to stand for the honor of reading God's Word together, proclaiming that the Lord Himself has spoken to us, His people, through this, His written Word. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, we'll be looking at the passage in the sermon entitled, The Gentle King. Here is what God's word says to us. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel saying, in times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and twenty men went with him, or twenty men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will rise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do right now thank you for this, your word. We ask that you would, as we each and every week ask, that you would impress it upon our hearts and that you would transform your people into the image of your son, King Jesus. Lord, for those among us who may not yet know you in Christ, we pray for conviction of sin to come through the preached word and for the recognition of their need for a Savior, Lord, that they would cry out this morning and be saved. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I know that I said that this passage begins in verse 17, but really this entire passage begins all the way back in verse 6. There's a literary unit here that runs all the way from verse 6 to verse 39. Um, and so uh, we, we considered the first part of that last week uh, really by focusing in, as we called it, on a couple of trees, right, and applying that to our current cultural context this morning. We're going to go back to the forest, okay? Uh, and so again, we'll take up three sections as we look at this literary unit. Uh, the first really is verse 6 through 21. I read 17 through 21. The second literary unit is found in 22 through 27 and then 28 
through 39. And it's really not difficult to see why we might separate these in the way that we do. The first section, you've got Abner. Uh, he is speaking and acting. It's Abner's show. Picture a stage, if you will. And Abner comes into the spotlight and there are two shadowy figures behind him. Three primarily men involved in this stage. It begins with Abner. He steps to the front. Uh, other two are standing in the background. Then Abner steps back. And here we have Joab that comes to the forefront. And Abner and David are in the shadows. And then finally, David steps forward and Abner and Joab are in the shadows. Abner, quite literally, in the shadow of death, but they are in the shadows. And, and together, we will see that there's an important lesson that we can learn from each of these men. Uh, and so let's consider them in turn. We'll start by first considering Abner. Abner, in this text, offers a hand. Abner offers a hand. We see this in verses 6 through 21. What do we know about Abner so far? We know lots, right? I, I would point out that there are a couple things we know for sure. The first being that Abner is no hero, is he? Abner is not exactly a hero. That's important to establish at the beginning of this because we're going to say some things later about Abner that will need that as a backdrop. In fact, I would argue that Abner would have already been fired from the secret service. Because in 1 Samuel 26, Abner is the fellow that David blames for failing to protect Saul when David snuck into the midst of the camp and took Saul's spear. David said Abner was worthy of death for his failure to protect his sovereign, his king, the Lord's anointed Saul. We might also ask, looking at the character of Abner, how did Abner survive the battle that took the life of Saul and Saul's sons? We're never told that, are we? We seemingly see him escaped unscathed in that battle that was clearly won by the Philistines. And that's just one of those things that make you think. This is the commander of Saul's army and somehow he escapes the battle where Saul and Saul's sons were killed. And the most recent addition to his resume in 2 Samuel would, of course, include moving the capital city uh, east of the Jordan, setting up a counter kingdom to the kingdom of David, the man after God's own heart, getting his butt kicked by Joab and his men there in chapter 2, and then finally making himself strong in the kingdom by taking Saul's concubine. I mean, this is not really an impressive resume thus far, is it? Uh, we aren't really considering a man who is virtuous here. One who is a hero so far by any stretch of the imagination. So we learn that Abner is certainly no hero. But though Abner may be no hero, Abner is also no fool. Abner is no fool. What do I mean by that? I mean he can read the writing on the wall. Abner knows that he belongs to the weaker of the two kingdoms. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 3, we read that Saul's kingdom is getting weaker and David's kingdom is getting stronger. Abner sees that. He knows. In verse 6, Abner's been recently accused by Ishbosheth of taking his father Saul's concubine. So Abner sees the writing on the wall. He can do the math. He is no dummy. He sees the only way out and he takes it. And what's his only way out? David. So here's what Abner does. He switches sides. 
In the middle of the war, he does. He switches sides here. And so no matter what else we may say about Abner, he's certainly no hero. He's certainly no fool. But I would also point out that Abner is no liar. Abner is no liar. That, That might not seem to be true in your mind. But listen, Abner is not even deceptive here. In fact, what he does is he walks right up to Ishbosheth and he tells Ishbosheth exactly what he's about to do in verses 8 through 11. He goes to the king and he says, I'm going to hand the kingdom over to David. He's not doing this underhandedly or deceptively. He doesn't sneak off while Ishbosheth is not looking and make his way down to David saying, David, let's work out a deal here. No, he tells Ishbosheth, I'm taking the kingdom and I'm giving it to David. The Lord's sworn it to him anyway. So Abner offers David his hand with the kingdom of Israel in it. That's what we see in verse 12, right? He says, whose is the land? Saying also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. By the way, in verses 6 through 21, the Hebrew word for hand, it's a key word in this section. Hand or power is another way we could translate that word. We've seen this as a key word really throughout the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. It's used repetitively in 1 Samuel chapter 5 when the ark went into exile in the land of the Philistines. You remember that story? And Dagon, that false god that was there with the ark, had his hands cut off. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the Philistines as they attempted to move the ark from place to place. And when the Israelites beat the Philistines without a single sword, bow, or spear, they recognize it's the hand of the Lord and they send the ark back to Israel. Here, once again, at the beginning of 2 Samuel, the hand becomes an important theme. Maybe that's to remind us of that incident that took place in 1 Samuel 5, or maybe it's to remind us that however else we might interpret these events that take place here, what we have is nothing less than the hand of a sovereign God working to bring about that which he has sworn to David for the sake of his people, Israel. So Abner is offering David his hand here. He switches sides, his allegiance. He's swearing to recognize David's authority and to serve David in whatever capacity David sees fit. And so that's scene one, that's Abner. And of course, as we do with Old Testament narrative, we ask the question, how are we to interpret or evaluate these things? What are we to make of Abner and his actions here? I mean, listen, this guy has been up until now on the wrong side doing the wrong things. What does he think? Now he's just going to skate on over to David's side and everything's just going to be hunky-dory? I mean, is he a genius or is he a fool? Does he legitimately believe the things he's starting to say or is he just continuing to do what he's always done, looking out for numero uno? Is the hand motif reminding us of why these things are happening and pointing us to a real change of heart in Abner? Or is Abner putting himself in the place of God, claiming to be the one who can give David the kingdom? Well, you guys have just asked some very, very good questions, and thank you for that. Uh, We'll answer them eventually, but just keep following with me. That's scene one. Abner stepped back to the stage, and here to the forefront in the spotlight comes Joab. Joab is next on the sage, and as we see Abner offers a hand, Joab decides to offer a sword. Joab offers a sword. 
We find this in verses 22 through 27 of our text. Let's read that together now. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. And then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he's already gone? Surely you recognize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sarah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Okay, so we have to ask here, who is Joab? And, and really, I think if you're familiar with the account of David, that as soon as you hear the word Joab, you know Joab, but we actually don't know Joab yet if we're reading the account from left to right. We don't meet him until 1 Samuel actually 26, and even then his name's just mentioned. He didn't really even show up on the scene until 2 Samuel chapter 2. So though it might be tempting to import everything we might already know about Joab into the present context, it would do us very well to read the narrative primarily left to right first and then right to left. All we know of Joab right now is that he was with David when David was exiled. We know that Joab is David's nephew, the son of David's sister, and Joab appears to be the itso facto general of David's army. But I think a better question than who is Joab is what type of man is Joab? What is his character? What's he like? Of course, it would appear, even from the little we do have on Joab, that first and foremost, Joab is a violent man. He is a violent man. Where do we get that? Well, you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, where Joab and Abner meet together? What do they do? They send out 12 from each of their camp, and they watch them in sport for their amusement kill one another. Um, Joab and Abner appear really not to be all that different from each other, do they? If anything, Abner actually appears in that narrative in chapter 2 to be more interested in avoiding bloodshed and violence than Joab does. Joab only relents after Abner talks some sense in him, warning him about the bitter end of those who rely upon the sword. So even before we get to our passage, we get the sort of a character sketch of a very violent man, a man who does not mind getting his hands dirty with other people's blood. That's the type of man we see so far. Not only that, but Joab is not only a violent man, he's also a deceitful man. Joab is a deceitful man. Don't miss the irony here. Did you catch this? Joab begins by appealing to David and warning David. David, Abner just came to deceive you, man. Don't you get it? He just wants to find out what's going on here. Even though no such motive is mentioned by our narrator. But then what does Joab do? He accuses Abner of deception and then he turns around and, and, turns around and deceives Abner, doesn't he? He calls Abner back, presumably on peaceful terms. 
Abner does not suspect what's about to take place. You can just picture Joab putting his arm around Abner and saying, you know what? Uh, David forgot to tell you something. He wanted me to pass this along to you. Pfft, right there. Done. Right? I don't know. That's not the sound I think it makes when somebody's stabbed. But he sticks him with a blade. And we should also remember that this isn't the last time Joab is going to do this type of thing, is it? If you know the story, he's going to do this one more time to Amasa. So Joab is a deceitful man. And we finally should add that Joab is a vengeful man. He's a violent man. Deceitful man. And he's a vengeful man. The narrator clarifies the motive for us in verses 27 and 30. Joab and Abishai killed Abner, it says, because Abner killed Asahel, their brother. That was his motive, according to the narrator. Now, we have to ask a question before we can really consider what we think of Joab, right? Because honestly, we're thinking, man, Abner deserved this, right? I mean, he killed the dude's brother. What do you really expect? Well, what does the law have to say about eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? Well, let's look at that. The question is, is Joab simply acting as the avenger of blood? That's a real term, by the way, in the scriptures. Uh, Joab, is he acting as the avenger of blood? Because if he is, we should interpret his words and actions one way. And if not, we might be compelled to interpret them a different way. So if you're not familiar with the concept of the avenger of blood... Who was it? It was a person who was legally responsible in Israel for carrying out the death sentence against someone who unlawfully kills one of their family members. Somebody who murders a family member with intent. We find this law in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19, the avenger of blood. And according to this law, it was the job of the avenger of blood to pursue and put to death the person who unlawfully killed a family member in order to restore justice in the land. In fact, the text says the land would actually cry out because of the innocent blood spilled upon it. This law, of course, is a historically specific outworking of the command that I just mentioned in Genesis chapter 9. That anyone who sheds man's blood unlawfully, his blood shall be shed. So... Is Joab simply fulfilling the duty and the responsibility of the avenger of blood? That's the question. And the answer is no. No, he's not. How do we know that? Well, we can know that for certainty uh, for three particular reasons. The first is, is that the avenger of blood, the law only refers to unlawful killing. The avenger of blood law only refers to unlawful killing. Killing. It's the death penalty of murder executed by the avenger of blood. But, hear me, death that occurs during wartime is not considered murder according to the Bible. How do I know that? Well, do you remember when Brother Corey just read for us David's pronouncement on his deathbed to Solomon about Joab? He encourages Solomon to put Joab to death at the beginning of 1 Kings. And he tells him this. He says, Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime. See, David is condemning Joab for wrongful avenging. Or in other words, you cannot avenge bloodshed of war during times of peace. 
But there's a second reason we can know that Joab's not acting as the avenger of blood here. And that's because, hear this, the avenger of blood law did not allow for unmitigated killing. The avenger of blood law did not allow for unmitigated killing. What I mean by that is it's not James Bond with a license to kill. No, there is not an unlimited license to take whoever's life you wanted in the Avenger blood law. Uh, there were laws uh, in, put in place so it wasn't just up to the Avenger of blood to make the decision. Well, whose decision was it? Well, here's how it would work. The manslayer, as he was referred to, was to flee to a city of refuge. There, in the city of refuge, the elders would hear the case and make the decision. If the manslayer was innocent of intentional killing with hatred in his heart, he would have to stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest, at which point he would be released. If he was guilty of murder, even the city of refuge would not save him. He was to be handed over to the avenger of blood where he would be put to death. Interestingly enough, do you want to know where Joab kills Abner in our story? He leads him right into the midst of the gate. You know what the gate is? It's the courtroom. Joab actually takes Abner and leads him right to the courtroom. Then, without any working through the system, without any elders present, without any judgment whatsoever, he becomes judge and jury slaying Abner. And let's take it a step further. Where was the gate? What city? Hebron. You know what Hebron was? A city of refuge. Only one of three to the west of the Jordan in the promised land. So no, it does not allow for unmitigated killing in the Bible. Third, the narrator had already demonstrated Abner's innocence to us, hadn't he? We know this. The narrator has already demonstrated Abner's innocence. Think uh, That's why we read the narrative, by the way, we do back in chapter 2. You remember what happens? Abner does not strike Asahel down in cold-blooded murder. The author records this for us. He turns around repeatedly to tell Asahel, don't do this, bro. Turn away. You don't want to do this. This is not a picture of premeditated murder. He begs Asahel, how will I face your brother Joab if you force me to kill you? So the near context of chapter 2 makes it clear that, that Joab is acting way out of line here. Joab's actions were indefensible. So here we return to the stage. We have Abner, a man who's served a wicked king, who has worked against David and the kingdom of God, the Lord's establishing through David, a man who was until now standing on the wrong side of redemptive history. He's offering David a hand. He switches sides and he offers David his allegiance in peace. What does Joab offer? Joab offers his sword in vengeance. Now they both take a step back and here comes David. What about David? What does David offer? Well, David offers us all a picture of the promise. David offers all of us a picture of the promise. He offers a picture of the Messiah here. Let's look at verses 28 and 39 and conclude our reading for today. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner the son of Ner. 
Let it rest on the head of Joab and all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourself with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept, and the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked man, so you fell. And then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. This is really remarkable. As we back up into Joab and Abner's scenes, let's remember, we recall that David offered peace instead of violence when Abner came to David. David sent away Abner, his enemy, in peace three times in three verses, it says. I don't think that's by accident, by the way. We see part of the same phrase a fourth time. Look, verse 21, we see he went in peace. Verse 22, we see he has gone in peace. Verse 23, we see about Abner, he has gone in peace. Then in verse 24, when we're hearing from the lips of Joab, we see so that he's already gone. You know what else is gone? Peace. <laughs> Once Joab enters the scene, Joab serves as what we would call the foil in this passage. A foil, if you're familiar, it's a character in a story who accentuates some quality in the main character. He works to provide a sharp contrast in order to bring forth with greater clarity some quality in the main character. In this narrative, that would be David. Joab's violence, his vengeance, and his vitriol serve to accentuate David's peace, praise, and promise. That's the first thing we see from King David. David promotes peace instead of violence. Doesn't he? David promotes peace instead of violence. Kings like David are not violent or vengeful men. They are quick to even receive their enemies if they surrender. In fact... They received them with honor, preparing a feast for those who moments before stood on the opposite side of the battle line. I mean, I mean it's interesting that, that Abner only brings 20 men to, to talk to David. That is hardly a fighting force, isn't it? I mean, Abner is vulnerable and he came to David vulnerable. David could have easily put him to death, yet he received and honored him. See, the kings of the world are like Joab. They off their enemies when opportunity presents themselves, but the man after God's own heart prepares a feast and offers peace. And it is truly incredible when you think about it. 
it is as though Abner's ledger is completely clean in David's eyes. He receives him as a loyal servant and an honorable ally. Joab's response makes the light of the David's kingship shine even brighter. By the way, I hope you're seeing this. What a beautiful illustration of how Jesus, the son of David, receives us. In fact, to appreciate the picture, that, that's why you have to have a proper image of Abner and Joab. So let me rehearse quickly what we've just seen. Abner's no hero. He hasn't been a hero up to this point in First and Second Samuel. Abner has been, up until this point, doing what? Faithfully serving a wicked king. A king that the Lord himself has rejected. He has been that wicked king's right-hand man. Abner was likely there when they off the whole town of Nab, meaning men, women, and children. Abner was there when they were hunting down David like a dog. Abner was one who more recently resisted the Davidic reign even after the death of Saul by setting up Ishbosheth as his rival. Abner's not a hero. I mean, this isn't even a good guy. And so the scene in verses 20 and 21 of David receiving Abner and providing a feast for him, forgive me for this, but, but I couldn't but have this image of, of Biden inviting DeSantis into the Oval Office for dinner together, okay? That's it. Now, don't, I ask for forgiveness, please, please don't equate either of those with David, right? Uh, but do you have Joab's response to this? Which most of us could probably relate to, right? I mean, the man killed his brother. Moments ago, he was just part of the enemy's forces. And, and now, he's been entertained by your king. And he was also, by the way, had your job on the other side as the commander of Saul's army. I mean, listen, according to the world, it makes sense for Joab to hunt this guy down and put him out of his misery. That's the simple math of the world. He's the enemy. He should die. He should not be trusted. His name and peace should never even been uttered in the same sentence. But then there's David, who is gentle, though he's anointed king. David offers peace instead of violence. Oh, I hope you see this picture of King Jesus. How much greater is the feast that Jesus has prepared for his enemies turned allies? How much greater is the peace that he's extended to those who have received him as king? Listen, it's my job to do the work for you, but you should really already be two steps ahead on this, and I hope you are. You aren't heroes. I'm not a hero. I was on the opposite battle line. I was working for the wicked king. Feel free to just pick this up wherever I leave off, right? We followed the prince of the power of the air. We did his bidding. We served the dominion of darkness. That's what God's word says. And, and this is where, by the way, the type here breaks down. Because you know what? You and I didn't wise up and see the writing on the wall and then go to Jesus and say, Hey, king of kings, can we work something out here? I'm going to hand over the king of the devil to you. Could you maybe send me away in peace? No, instead, Jesus left the heavenly Hebron. He passed over the Jordan going east to enter into the enemy's camp and take upon himself that which we should have paid for as his enemy for all eternity. The just penalty due for our sin against a holy and righteous God. See, the difference between this story and us is that Jesus came to us. 
You and I, we were content to perish. But God loved us and sent his son to cross over to us. The light of the world pierced our darkness. He bore our weakness and lived in the kingdom of Ishbosheth of this world. He crossed over because we wouldn't or couldn't. And he died Abner's death, except Jesus, unlike Abner, was completely innocent. Jesus' hands were not bound. His feet were not fettered. He willingly gave himself to the hands of the wicked in order to save sinners like you and me. He took the curse of Joab upon his own head to redeem us from the hatred, violence, and deception in our own hearts. And now all we know is peace. Now we sit at the table that our father and his son have prepared for his people. And friends, someday, very, very soon, even though it doesn't feel like it, we will sit around the table of the bridegroom. We will be received as princes and princesses of the King Most High. Can you imagine? I mean, you know your own heart, right? I mean, you aren't completely deceived. I hope you know how broken and twisted you still are. How often you still serve the wrong king. And yet, if your hope is in Jesus, there's a day quickly coming when God the Father will receive you like every single day all you did was his will. All you did was think his thoughts after him. All you did was faithfully serve him and work for his glory in all the earth. That's remarkable. What a beautiful picture here. Friends, we got to see ourselves as the Abner here. And yet even worse off, because we didn't wise up, Jesus came and saved us anyway. So first we see David offers peace instead of violence. But I want you to see next, listen, David promotes praise instead of vitriol. This just blows my mind here. Right? If you were watching this unfold as a TV show, you would think, David, what are you doing, man? Play the game. Don't be a fool. But, but listen, there's a lot of overlap here, so I'll try to move quickly. Abner's no hero. He's faithfully served a wicked king, yet David praises him. David's commendation of Abner, it's explicit and extensive here. I mean, he doesn't just say after Abner dies, man, that's a shame. Really wish I would have got to know that guy a little bit better. You know, I think he was really a, a good guy, deep down deep. No, he says... He is a prince and a great man. More righteous than Joab is what Solomon says in 1 Kings chapter 2. So according to David, Abner dies with full honor. He receives the burial of a king. David commands his people to offer the mourning appropriate for a man of honor and dignity here. Listen, it could have been enough just for David to say, listen, I know this looks bad because Joab's my guy, but listen, I, I had nothing to do with this, people. Please believe me. But David's not putting on an act here. He's not making a press release statement. David is legitimately grieving. David held him in high regard. The king himself follows Abner to his grave, lamenting and weeping. David even fasts for him. And this is really just another way of saying what we've already seen in the first point. David has received Abner with open arms. And as far as David is concerned, Abner has always been on his side. He treats him as such at least. Come on, guys. Isn't that incredible? 
I mean, where else do you see that again? It's one thing for the political advantage to maybe receive Abner while he's still alive, but why in the world would you honor him while he's dead? Because in David's eyes, Abner was his now. All of Abner's attempts to kill him, to set up a rival kingdom, they were history. Abner is honored like he had always been David's faithful servant. Remember, Joab's the foil here. Joab is severe, and quite frankly, so are the kings of the world. They are severe, violent, and vengeful men, but David is gentle. David isn't like the kings of the world. David is a picture of his greater son. Joab here holds a grudge. David forgives. Joab is fueled by vitriol. David is motivated by love. Joab offers his sword. David offers peace and praise. So the question the text demands is, which do you prefer? Do you want peace or violence? Do you want praise or vitriol? Do you want patience or vengeance? That's the final one, by the way. David promotes patience instead of vengeance. David promotes patience instead of vengeance. David could have immediately executed Joab for an unlawful killing. Now, David instead does indict him on very strong terms, doesn't he? He says, let it rest on the head of Joab and all his father's house. But in this context, David demonstrates patience. In fact, David's final words really say it all, don't they? In verse 39, at the very end, he says, the Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. There's a reason the story ends right here. David's words spoken here is the picture of the gentle and lowly. He's the picture of the one who ultimately entrusted to the Lord these matters. And it's a context that, that makes, by the way, this response just and righteous. With Joab uh, providing the contrast, David is gentle. He knows that vengeance belongs to the Lord and he will allow the Lord to repay Joab's house for their blood guilt. Yes, a curse is issued. But David here is not going to take matters into his own hands. So here David offers a picture of the promised Messiah. I mean, listen, each of these men in our passage, they, they offer us such a tremendously important lesson that we, we have to learn from them. We need to learn from Joab. Joab's acted wickedly. He doesn't trust the king. He despises his judgments, his patience, patience and his peace. This is Joab's fatal flaw. What do we learn from Joab? He despises David's gentleness. Joab's view of justice is twisted and his self-evaluation is perverted. So in the end, Joab kills someone more righteous than he. And what's the lesson? Don't despise a lowly and gentle king. Don't. But just think about the realm of our life right now. Any leader who's lowly and gentle we view as weak. It's reality. And yet, look at this. It's the temptation of every human heart to desire vengeance. Did you know that? It's the temptation of all of our hearts to love violence, to cultivate vitriol or hatred. It's natural to us in our fallen nature. But friends, let's not follow in Joab's footsteps and choose, choose severity instead of gentleness. Let's not offer a sword, whether it be with deed or word, to those who Jesus has sent away in peace. We need to learn from Joab. We also need to learn from Abner. 
I love this. What's the lesson from Abner? See the writing on the wall. The lesson you learn from Abner in the story is clear. See the writing on the wall. Look, in the eyes of the world, and probably even in our eyes to some degree, Abner's move may seem broken and twisted, switching sides as he does. But understood in the greater context here, really this is the first whole and straight thing that Abner has ever done. And praise the Lord, it was in the nick of time. Really, nothing else matters but that he chose David as his king. That's all that matters. He gave his hand to David, so he dies in honor and dignity. This is all that matters, friends. So let me ask you, have you seen the writing on the wall? Do you understand that the kingdom of this world is growing weaker and the kingdom of David's greater son is growing stronger? That it doesn't matter what your place is in the kingdom, the entire kingdom will be swept away when Jesus returns? Have you seen the writing on the wall that you will not stand on the day of wrath if you have not bent a knee to King Jesus? Time is short. Receive Jesus. If you see your need, arise and go to him. Offer him everything like Abner does. Tell him to rule over whatever his heart desires and you too will hear the praise on the only one whose judgment really matters in the final analysis. Abner saw the writing on the wall. We need to learn from him. And finally, we need to learn from David. This is so critical. Hear me. What we learn from David is Jesus is not severe. He's not. Jesus is not severe. Matthew 11 comes to mind, doesn't it? This is Jesus' own testimony about himself and all that he said was true. What does he say? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, friends, hear me, is gentle. And listen, it's so easy for our perception of these things to become twisted even subtly. But hear me, Jesus receives all who come to him. He is not like Joab. Remember, that's the real contrast. I know we would never actually apply this to Jesus and yet we do it all the time. Jesus would never bring you into the court and stab you in the stomach. Some of us approach Jesus like that. Like he's not gentle and lowly. Like he's not standing with open arms ready to receive any sinners who know their desperate need for him. Or, or maybe we think about him that way when we first met him. But as I walk, really as I walk apart from him, my perception gets twisted. All of a sudden I think he's severe. He asks more from me than I'm willing to give. But friends, go back to where you were in the beginning. In what state did you come to Jesus? Did Jesus receive you only after you paid your own debt? When you came to him, did he give you a list of things you must do in order to be received as his child? Does he receive you on different terms now than when you first came to him? Does he offer you less? He received you, offered you a feast, and you feasted on incredible grace, mercy, and love. And now you've just been walking with him for years and you say, I just don't know. He demands so much. He's not Joab. 
He's not David either. He is far more gentle and lowly than even David. So gentle and lowly is this Jesus that being very God, a very God, he put himself in the hands of wicked men in order to be crucified. Though he held in his hand the very strength, the very power to extinguish the entire universe by speaking a single word. He's gentle and lowly. Friends, the reality is you don't know gentle until you know Jesus. His body has been broken. His blood has been shed. And Jesus says, come. The Spirit says, come. The church says, come. The reality is and what we need to live by is that he will not withhold his peace, forgiveness, love, and mercy from any who turn to him. Have you experienced the reality of this king? Have you come to him and received him? If so, and maybe you're in this point in your life where you feel like it's just too much of a demand. Oh, go back to the beginning of your faith. Remember how he received you into his family. He's still that way. He's still gentle. And, and, and let me encourage you, what you think he demands of you and what you're not willing to give up isn't really worth anything. <laughs> it's not worth near the amount that you think it is. Jesus is the one who's worthy of every ounce and bit of your life because of who he is and what he's done because he is a gentle and lowly king. Friends, don't be Joab. Recognize that you are an Abner and run to the gentle king. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, what a picture of your son we get in the lowly and gentle David that we find in 2 Samuel 3. And what a contrast we find in Joab. Lord, we, we need to confess to you that we, we too often entertain vengeance, violence, and vitriol. Father, we, we ask that you, would, that you would purge that of your people. That you purge that from our, our thoughts about your son, Jesus. Lord, would you remind us of how gentle and lowly our exalted king still is. How willing he is to receive sinners who repent and place their trust in him. Would you help us to have a greater confidence in him as we continue to struggle against sin and we walk in this broken, twisted world? Would you help us to be faithful in proclaiming him far and wide? Lord, we love you. Prepare our hearts to live this word out into this broken and dying world. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.